0: Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery Notes from the Guards Museum. My name is Andrew Wallace, and I am the director of the museum. Before we launch into the next part of the virtual tour of the museum, I want to give a huge shout out to everyone working in the NHS. Yes, one aspect of this podcast is about bravery on the battlefield but I want to pause and salute the outstanding bravery being displayed on a daily basis by the heroes of the National Health Service. My daughter and her husband are both in the NHS. She's a community midwife support worker, and he is an advanced clinical practitioner. My son is a teacher, and he's married to a doctor. My younger sister is an administrator with the NHS, as was my older sister, and I am one of the one million NHS volunteers. So, As a family, we know a little of what is going on at the moment in the fight against the COVID-19 virus. To everyone on the front line, we salute you. You'll have heard about the huge effort that has gone into building the pop-up emergency intensive care facilities in various exhibition centres throughout the UK. They've been named after Florence Nightingale who rose to national prominence when she set up field hospitals in the Crimea in 1854 to tend to the wounded soldiers on the battlefield. The Guards have close links with this special lady and her friend and nursing colleague Mary Seacole. If you'd like to know more about her and the link between these ladies and the Guards, then please go to our website at www.theguardsmuseum.com and look for the link to our YouTube channel. Where you will find a short film by my colleague, Lee Morell, who sets out this interesting story. This episode is being recorded just after we received news that our Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, has managed to overcome the COVID-19 virus, thanks to the superlative care he received at the hands of the dedicated medical team at St Thomas's Hospital. And he's gone to his official country residence at Chequers to recuperate. I'd like to share with you my own experience of meeting this remarkable man here at the Gars Museum. I've already mentioned that we raise revenue at the museum by hosting corporate events, and we have become rather good at them. So, some years ago, a gentleman by the name of David Wall asked to run a dinner here, and he informed me the guest of honour would be the Mayor of London, one Boris Johnson, who at this time was some six weeks away from his attempt to be re-elected as Mayor of this great city and, as such, a rather busy man. Comes the night, and Mr Wall and his guests are enjoying pre-dinner drinks and canapes, waiting for the main man. Eventually, a figure comes down the stairs into the museum. You may recall we are actually situated underground. And he has his ubiquitous bicycle with him, and he inquires where he can leave it during the meal, and asks will it be safe. That being dealt with, he enters the museum and David Wall immediately starts introducing him to the key delegates at the dinner. Now please understand, these dinners are hugely important for us, but the evening is not about us or about the collection. It's all about our clients and their guests. So, yours truly tends to stand at the back and I just make sure that everything flows smoothly in terms of catering and programming. I never asked to be introduced to the guest of honour and I never expect to be introduced either. So it is something of a surprise when David waved me forward and introduced me to Mayor Johnson. David said, Boris, may I introduce Andrew Wallace, who's in charge here at the museum? I said, good evening, Mayor Johnson. I do hope you enjoy your evening. and was about to withdraw when the mayor said, oh, you're in charge, aren't you? I said, yes, I am to which he earnestly said, might I have a quick private word with you? I said, yes, of course, and we moved into our conservatory entranceway, away from the others. I inquired, what can I do to help you? The mayor, in his famous, almost Churchillian staccato delivery, said, been embarrassing, been a hectic day. What exactly is this event? I responded, Mayor Johnson, this is the annual lobbying dinner for the East Midlands Business Development Forum. He replied, ah yes, back on the page, thank you, good man. The meal proceeded and we got to the point between the main course and the dessert course where I stand to tell the guests a little about the museum and the collection. I give a swift and hopefully an entertaining skip through 380 years worth of Guards history I had deliberately placed Mayor Johnson in front of a painting of Prince Adolphus Frederick, the First Duke of Cambridge, which portrays him as having a shock of blonde and somewhat unruly hair, and I pointed out to the guests the more than passing resemblance to our current Mayor of London. Much laughter followed, in which the Mayor, in a stage whisper, could be heard to say to the person next to him, I always knew I came from good stock. Shortly thereafter, the mayor rose to give his speech. He had no notes. He placed his hands in his jacket pockets and stared at his audience. Then he said, Good people of the East Midlands Business Development Forum, no doubt you are sitting there, replete after this excellent meal, and are waiting for me to tell you how I, Boris Johnson, Mayor of London, am going to help you develop business in the East Midlands. Yes, well, that's not going to happen. Let me tell you about my theory of the tadpole economy. The tail of the tadpole starts in Scotland. Let me tell you, absolutely nothing happens there. And as we travel down through the north of England, the tail is still very thin because very little is going on there, too. As we reach the East Midlands, the tail is indeed starting to thicken. But again, let me tell you, the head of the tadpole lies in London where everything meaningful happens. And I am utterly convinced that if we get London right, then everywhere else will do well. It was masterful. He had popped their balloon in an amusing way, and then went on and spoke for 40 minutes without notes, and gave the most comprehensive commentary on the issues facing the UK economy in a world context. His delivery was well-informed, well-crafted, upbeat and constructive, deeply patriotic, and leavened with a generous sprinkling of humour. If, as he sat to thunderous applause, he had said, let's invade Russia, I swear the entire room would have followed him. It was a tour de force. Later that evening, he sat with his re-election team in my office, as Boris needed to sign a stack of posters featuring his image to be used on the campaign trail the following day. He was literally falling asleep. He was utterly exhausted. He was working 20-hour days, and I witnessed him do something quite remarkable. He was offered a piece of information which would have greatly helped his chances in the election but was decidedly detrimental to somebody else. So he forbade his team to use it. He said, I will either win this election on the issues or I won't and I'm fine with that but I'm not going to get down in the gutter to do it. There were no cameras there. There were no members of the press with their notebooks. He wasn't performing to the gallery. He went on to say, and if I find one of you has used this information as part of my campaign, I will sack you. I stood there as part of the wallpaper, and I have to say I was deeply impressed with what I saw. Before he left, it was by this stage gone 1am, he thanked me for the use of my office and for the dinner. I let him and his team out, and I cleaned up the museum, set the alarms and locked up. On event nights I sleep in my office as there's no point flogging 55 miles to my home. At 7am the next morning I had a phone call from the barrack guardroom to say a parcel had been left for me by a guy on a bicycle. The parcel contained a signed copy of Boris Johnson's new book called London. It was duly annotated on the flyleaf with his thanks for his experience in the museum and how much he enjoyed his visit. Regardless of one's political views, it was a remarkably thoughtful and polite gesture in a world where those two attributes are rarely seen. We at the museum are delighted he has made it out of hospital, and we very much hope he makes a full recovery and gets back to work in due time. So, back to business and the next part of our journey through the galleries. We've already looked at the formation of the three older regiments – namely the First Guards, the Coldstream Guards and the Scots Guards. So now we look at the early days, and we find ourselves in the Marlborough Gallery, so named after John Churchill, the first Duke of Marlborough, and maybe Britain's finest ever military leader. He had fantastic victories on the battlefield at places such as Malplaquet, Aldenada, Fontenoy, and a host of other places, but his most famous victory was at a place called Blenheim, for which a grateful Queen Anne and a grateful nation gave him Blenheim Palace to live in. John Churchill started life as a page to James, Duke of York, and then, in 1667, at 17 years of age, he was given an Ensigns Commission in the First Guards, and so started a long and proud relationship with this Guards Regiment. He ended up as Field Marshal and Commander-in-Chief of the Army. It must be pretty great to be given one of the biggest stately homes in England to live in, but there is a rent to be paid each year, and it's paid in the form of what they call a quit-rent banner. If you visit Blenheim Palace, in the green writing room, you will see a huge tapestry on the wall in one of the corners. It's vast. It shows the moment of victory at the Battle of Blenheim. In the left foreground, one can see a drummer from the First Guards, picking up the captured French flag or colour. He is about to present it to John Churchill, your victory, sir. Churchill never forgot it was a drummer who gave him his moment of glory. On his return to England, Queen Anne elevated him to become First Duke of Marlborough and gave him Blenheim Palace to live in. His elevation meant that he was now entitled to a coat of arms. Garter Principal King of Arms at the College of Heralds asked him what heraldic devices he wanted on his new coat of arms. Churchill, somewhat undiplomatically, responded that he wanted, amongst other things, three large fleurs-de-lis to show his three great victories over the French. This was done. The Quitrent banner features the three fleurs-de-lis, and its design is loosely based on that of the colour captured at the Battle of Blenheim. Every year in perpetuity the Duke of Marlborough presents a French royal standard to the sovereign via the superintendent of the castle in lieu of rent. Every banner has the year embroidered on it. Only Blenheim Palace and the Duke of Wellington's estate at Stratfield Say are afforded the quit-rent standard in thanks of their respective victories over the old enemy, France. Blenheim's Quitrent rent banner is always presented in the week leading up to the anniversary of the first duke's historic victory over Louis XIV at the Battle of Blenheim on August 13th, 1704. Blenheim Palace was paid for by public subscription. The land that it is on is a former royal hunting lodge which belongs to the crown, so, in principle, if the quint banner is not handed over each year, the Queen could reclaim the land, and with it, the palace, so it's probably a good idea to make sure that it keeps getting handed over. As I said before, Churchill never forgot that it was a drummer who gave him his big moment of victory. If you look at the modern day drummer's home service scarlet tunic, it has white facings or stripes horizontally across the front and down each sleeve, as well as following the seams on the back of the jacket. From a distance, These white facings appear to have small dark blue dots on them. But if you get close, you will find they are in fact tiny fleur-de-lis. As I said before, there is nothing in British military uniform that doesn't mean something. In truth, Queen Anne had the hots for this guy. She thought he was rather dashing and was very taken with him. I rather think her interest was not reciprocated she gave him a rather wonderful silver-hilted court sword made by a guy called Richard Blaney, which was indeed a thing of beauty. How do we know this? Well, yes, you guessed it, we have it on display in the museum in the Marlborough Gallery. It is thought to be the earliest inscribed presentation sword in England. The wording on the top of the blade reads, Presented by Her Most Sacred Majesty the Queen, 1702. Queen Anne gave it to him when she appointed him Captain General of her forces in the Low Countries that year. It is called the Marder, as that is the design of the blade, and the word is a corruption of the word Königsmark being the name of the designer. It used to live on the wall of the officer's mess in St James's Palace, until one very liquid dinner, when a guard's officer jumped up from the table, took the sword off the wall and said, See this? Finest Toledo steel, do you know you can bend the chip right round to the handle? Sadly, the sword is not made of Toledo steel, and the blade snapped in three places. We think the officer is still paying for the repairs. The design of the sword is such that the blade narrows 12 inches down from the hand grip, so that if your opponent manages to snap your sword, it will break at that point, thus leaving you still with a useful 12-inch dagger with which to defend yourself. About 16 years ago the sword was loaned to a museum in Austria for an exhibition. It was insured for a quarter of a million pounds to make that journey. So it's quite an expensive after-dinner trick for the young officer. After due repairs were carried out the sword was recovered to the museum for safekeeping. Now here's the thing, where do you think the word grenadier comes from? Perhaps you are shouting, it's to do with grenades, and you would be right, of course. But where did the word grenade come from? Well, it comes from the Spanish, la granada, which means the pomegranate. Because the bombs that used to be thrown in Marlborough's era were the same size and shape as a pomegranate. Picture, if you will, a spherical one-pound ball of metal, just a bit bigger than a cricket ball which has been hollowed out and the centre packed with explosives and a three-inch fuse sticking out. We have a very interesting set of prints, which are taken from a drill book from the period, which shows the various positions a musketeer went through to fire his musket, then to sling his musket over his shoulder by the strap. He then reaches into the large pouch he carries and brings out his grenade. The sergeant lights the fuse of the bomb with his slow match, after which the musketeer waves the bomb from side to side to get the fuse burning properly. Then, in an overarm action, he throws the grenade at the enemy. The men who threw the bombs were called Grenadiers. This should not be confused with the name of the first guards, who were later to have the name Grenadier added to their full regimental nomenclature. The reason they got that name is the subject of a very different story which we will cover in a few weeks' time. The men who were best at the job were usually the tallest men in the regiment because their lever lengths were longer than the short guys which gave them a better throwing action. So, in battle, the right flank company was always the grenadier company. Remember, this is a job, not a regimental name. Which is why, on the ceremony of trooping the colour on Horse Guards Parade each June, regardless of which of the five regiments of foot guards is trooping their colour, as number one company, better known as the Escort for the Colour, goes forward to collect the colour prior to trooping it through the ranks, the band always plays the march British Grenadiers, because the right flank company of every regiment used to be the Grenadier Company. Remember, It was a job first and not a regimental name. Also in this gallery, we have a large image of a painting of King George II at the Battle of Dettingen in 1743. It was painted by the artist John Wotton and depicts the very last time a monarch led his army into battle. The King is accompanied in the painting by the Duke of Cumberland and by Robert Fourth Earl of Holderness. The original of this painting is in the National Army Museum and is well worth going to see. One of the senior officers who fought alongside King George II at Dettingen was Lieutenant General John Lagonier. So impressed was George II with the way Legonier fought during the battle, he appointed him a Knight of the Bath there and then on the battlefield. Lagonier was made Field Marshal in 1757 and the same year he was made Colonel of the First Guards, a post he was to hold for a further thirteen years. He was actually an ardent cavalryman, so it was quite a departure for him to assume the colonelcy of a pedestrian regiment. I think it fair to say that typically cavalrymen and infantry are akin to oil and water in that they don't really mix My predecessor, Captain David Horn, an ardent footguard, always used to sniff and say. You can always tell a cavalryman, but you can't tell him much. Ligonier, although in his capacity as a cavalry officer, fought at all of Marlborough's major battles. Blenheim, Ramillies, Aldenada, Malplaquet, Dettingen and Fontenoy. As a young company commander, he also fought for Marlborough at the Battle of Schellenberg in 1704. And we have a wonderful diorama of this battle in the gallery. We have deliberately displayed it low down so that children can get the most out of this very detailed battlefield scene. We frequently find children kneeling in front of the diorama for ages, taking in every detail of the assault, seeing the ranks of advancing infantry, the smoke from the cannons and the unfurled colours streaming in the wind. Heroic stuff. We also have Field Marshal Lagonier's silver court sword on display. Talking about the Battle of Fontenoy, we have a print of the first guards at that battle, and it's interesting to see just how close the opposing armies had to be before the muskets became effective. The print shows the front rank with their muskets in the firing position, and on the right flank, the sergeant of muskets is using his spontoon or half-pike to depress the barrels of the muskets being aimed by the musketeers. The spontoon was usually between 7 and 8 feet in length with an ornate blade at the top with two smaller blades on either side of the main blade giving it the impression of a trident. The muskets were incredibly heavy to lift into the firing position and the musketeers would typically lean back to counter the heavy weight which sometimes caused them to shoot high so the sergeant would use his spontoon to press the barrels back down to make sure they were hitting the target. Just above the diorama of the Battle of Schellenberg is a very fine oil painting by the artist P.H. Calderon. It was painted in 1862, but the uniforms of the soldiers depicted would set the scene around Marlborough's time. The scene shows soldiers of the First Guards in a badly wrecked cottage or croft questioning a young child, probably about the whereabouts of the boy's father. The soldiers who have crowded into the room are laden with looted goods. In the left foreground we see a young drummer boy, in his coatee with gold facings on the sleeves, with his rope tension drum slung on his back being carried by the drag ropes over his shoulders, his tin flute case on his right side and a mitre cap on his head. We believe the scene represents the Highland clearances, which were going on in the late 1700s and early 1800s. A systematic depopulation of the Highlands to break the clan system and to force the troublesome Lairds from Scotland. From these beautifully executed contemporary paintings, we learn so much about the details of the uniforms and the way in which they were worn. One of the issues we have with early uniforms is that we don't always know what the back of the uniform looked like because characters depicted in these works are usually facing the artist, giving great frontal detail but leaving the back a bit of a mystery. Adjacent to this painting is another original oil painting of the Keppel children. The painting shows the three children of William Anne Keppel, the second Earl of Albemarle, who started his military career as a cavalry officer, and who commanded the Royal Horse Guards at the Battle of Dethingen, but who was then made Colonel of the Colstream Guards in 1774, and fought under the Duke of Cumberland at the Battle of Fontenoy the following year, where he was wounded. The painting is what we would term a genealogical painting, in that it is telling us a story about a family. It tells us that these children are from a wealthy family, as they are dressed in theatrical costumes, acting out of play in their rather lavish home. The costumes they are wearing are ornate, to say the least. More examples of children being kitted out in military play clothes. And the older boy is dressed as an officer of the Coldstream Guards, and he has a protective arm around the shoulder of his little sister, who is carrying a basket of fruit. The younger boy is dressed as a private in the Coldstream Guards, and he has plucked out a piece of fruit from his sister's basket. And the piece of fruit is? Yes, a pomegranate. For he is in the Grenadier Company of the Coldstream Guards. Remember, Grenadier at this stage is a job rather than a regimental title. There is a family pecking order here. The older boy, who will inherit the family title, is dressed as an officer whereas the younger son, who will inherit nothing, is dressed just as a private soldier. And in the foreground, we see the family pet, a King Charles Cocker Spaniel, gazing up into the eyes of the older boy, the senior person in the painting. The painting is attributed to the artistic circle of Marcellus Laroon, who was a famous painter in the late 17th and early 18th century. The museum was able to secure this painting with the assistance of the Art Fund, which kindly supported the purchase. By their very nature, uniforms, being made of cloth, tend not to last as long as armour, so it is very rare to find uniforms from the 18th century in good condition, so we are incredibly fortunate to have a beautiful officer's full-dress coat from around 1765. It belonged to Captain the Honourable Thomas Needham, The scarlet coat is adorned with blue and gold lace on the front and sleeve cuffs. And the bottom edges of the front panels are buttoned back to show off the waistcoat underneath. The front of the coat is decorated with very fine horn-backed silver gilt buttons, which are grouped in twos. Now we tend to think of buttons in twos as representing the Coldstream guards. However, in this instance, that is not the case. For this coat is so old, It predates the button-spacing regulations, which only came in in 1774. Captain Needham was in fact the Third Guards, or, as we know them today, the Scots Guards. Students of fashion travel from all over the world to see this coat. Until recently, these students were allowed to examine the garment so they could see how it was constructed. However, this is no longer allowed, as the risk to the condition of the garment is too great. Now here's the thing. Did you know that Julius Caesar was in the Guards? I bet you didn't, but he was. Of course, it wasn't the Roman guy who famously went on to become a pincushion for Brutus. This was another man who served in the Guards, and who was appointed to the rank and position of Major General in June 1759. How do we know this? Well, we have the warrant of appointment on display, and it was signed by Robert, 4th Earl of Holderness, who fought with King George II at Dettingen. Some of the older ones amongst you may remember the nighttime malted hot milk drink called Horlicks. Well, we have a huge set of model soldiers made for the founder of that company. To say he was an avid model soldier collector is something of an understatement. There are nearly 4,000 soldiers in the set. We are only able to display some of the ones relating to the foot guards. I am told he hand-painted all of them, and when the exercise was complete, he had all the moulds broken so that no one else could have copies made. We have examples of foot guards regiments from the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries, and they are fantastically detailed, even though they are quite small in size. Each era is depicted with musicians of that time, ranging from black men, or men of colour as they were called at the time, carrying jingling johnnies or tambourines, musicians carrying serpents, not the poisonous ones, but early snake-like wind instruments, to drum and fife bands. They are arranged over three glass shelves, and when I first took over, I would berate my staff for moving the left-hand man in the rear rank of the centre shelf. Inexplicably, he was often found to be facing 90 degrees to the left, while the rest of the platoon were facing to the front. My staff denied having anything to do with this phenomenon. We then realised that vibrations from the underground tube service, the Circle and District line, over the course of a month, were helping to move this one soldier, who had a slightly uneven base, through ninety degrees, mystery solved. Have we sorted out his base to stop him moving? Absolutely not. It's a good story. Lastly, we have our cat and nine tails, and the punishment book from the Colstream guards. We call this gallery music and punishment. Punishment, obviously, because of the whip, but music, because as you heard last week, it was the young drummer boys who were used to lay on the lash. Five people were involved in any flogging. Obviously, the man being punished. Then the young drummer wielding the lash. The drum major, who was there to ensure the drummer did it with his full force. And if he didn't, he was next up to be beaten. Behind the drum major was an officer to keep the score. And next to him would be the surgeon major. He was there to step in and stop the punishment if he thought the man was going to be unable to shoulder his pack, or even worse, likely to die. The cat tails, as its name suggests, was a whip flail of nine strands, and into each strand nine pieces of lead shot were tied. So with each stroke, nine times nine bits of a man's back were flicked out. You heard last week how John Mackenzie Rogan witnessed a flogging and how he found it to be the most awful and barbaric ceremony. On that occasion, the prisoner was awarded 25 lashes for the theft of some minor object. If one looks at the punishment book for the Coldstream Guards from the late 1700s, we can see that one Edward Wood was awarded 200 lashes for being, and I quote, in liquor and incapable of dismounting guard the man was drunk and received 200 lashes for it. The men being punished would often bribe the surgeon to look away, because if the punishment was stopped on the advice of the surgeon, the prisoner was cut down from the frame and taken away, only to be brought back in two days' time for the balance of the punishment to be delivered. Now in two days' time your back was worse, not better, so many would decide to tough it out and risk dying rather than go through the pain of being flogged on a back which was still raw and bloody, probably with infection in it as well. Brutal punishments, but they were brutal times. So that's about it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about the paintings and uniforms we have from these early years, and hearing about some of the guards' characters who helped Marlborough and then King George to wage war in Europe. The next part of the tour will look at the Peninsula Campaign, Wellington's long-running battle against Napoleon Bonaparte, culminating in the memorable Battle of Waterloo. Next week, however, we will be delving into another one of the books from the museum's library to hear some more tales to inspire and amuse. If you have enjoyed this podcast, do hit the like button and leave a review, because that helps us a lot. Do get in touch to tell me what you think of the concept. The email address is very simple. It's guardsmuseum, or one word, at AOL.com. Please do tell your friends about the podcast. I'm trying to build up the audience to be at least two people so that you can then form a club and invite me out to dinner. If you'd like to support the work we do here, then go to our website at www.theguardsmuseum.com and look for the Support Us button. Or you can go directly to our donation page at www.justgiving.com forward slash campaign forward slash Guards Museum Support. Once again, that's www.justgiving.com forward slash campaign forward slash Guards Museum Support. I have been Andrew Wallace. This has been episode four of Bearskin's Bayonets and Bravery, Notes from the Guards Museum. Thank you for listening, and stay safe. Now, turn to your right and salute. Dismiss! Up, down, and get away.